You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 68 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. For this episode, we kick off a new series focused on the rise of complex civilizations across the world. Why did our hunting and gathering ancestors give up their freedoms for an eternity of oppression by so-called elites? How did states develop differently across the globe? And will that Neolithic apologist, Stefan Milo, assassinate the three of us before we finish this series? Well, let's find out. Guys, so states. We're not talking about the United States. What do you guys think of when we think of the state? Starting with you, Connor. Well, I think my mind always goes back to the, you know, I think one of the earliest definitions of states, which is done by Elman Service back in the day. Back in the day, no, 1962, where he's kind of like drawing this linear progression of people through time and space. Basically, you have people that evolve or, or like start a savage or start in these like bands and and they eventually like move up to, or level up eventually to the highest of civilizations. But that's where I go initially, just because I think it's it's a joke of a theory, and it's really easy to like poke fun at because it's like, oh, okay, like thank you for your blatant racism on how you think people, societies, and, and things should exist. So I really appreciate your honesty on that. <laughs> to play devil's advocate, though, like, it, like, what is another way to describe like the different state, like the the different social organizations of of people? That's a good point, and it's definitely better than Lewis Henry Morgan's how he tried to to categorize different level like levels, quote air quotes of yeah. society. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the line that you draw. So you can describe people right. in these different like bands, tribes, chiefdoms, states. I think that makes sense, but it's like okay. Tribes are better than bands. Well, then obviously uh, yeah. states yeah. are better than tribes. And, you know, it's it's like you're not achieve, the ultimate achievement is being a state. Where sure. Like, you max out all your, your attributes and you're, you know. You grinded those levels. Yeah. And I, I think if you are like talking about it in the sense of like things, you know, like linear evolution, they get up to the point of state and they that's where they're going. That's like what Boaz was opposed to, which is not historical particularism, but that's what Boaz was. But if you think about it, like think of the Americas when the Spanish got there, you have a state level society in like Mexico and South America. Then you have bands on the plains and then you have tribes that are nomadic. And then you have like small statehoods like up in the North and stuff too. So it's like you have simultaneous groups of people and like organizations of people, but you're right. It's like a fluid thing where there's no like fine line to like what between what you are yeah, yeah like, like general categories they're good descriptions well, descriptors and, and this is coming out of like especially like lewis henry morgan 1877 came up with the three ideas that you have s- savagery barbarism and civilization <laughs> so you have savages barbarians <laughs> and then you have europeans which are the civilized and this is all coming out of a point where europeans are globalizing the world, like the early precursors of globalization and trying to categorize cultures across the globe into these categories. And we see this with the history of anthropology where they start with these very broad, usually triumvirate categories. And as the discipline of 
anthropology develops, we continue to break down. So even and like Lewis Henry Morgan, for instance, like there's like three levels of savages, three levels of barbarians and like three levels of civilizations within each category. And then you get element service in 1962 with bands, tribes, chiefdoms and states. And it sounds very and like David touched on this earlier this concept of unilineal evolution where you start from the bottom and then you move to the top. But like even service in his idea, he talks about this idea. I think chiefly cycling comes later, but States can revert. You basically get two chiefdoms and you can move to States, but you can fall back into chiefdoms. So there's a little bit of recycling at the top. You never ultimately go back to being like a tribe or a band. No, is what is what they see. But but yeah, there's there's this like fluidity between these these systems. I mean, sometimes they work, and sometimes a drought comes and tells you to that this isn't working anymore. We have to split up and and and, and try something different. It's just like you have to adapt to the surrounding cultures and the environments that you're you're put into. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. Absolutely, and like just and here's a really good quote by Scar and Fagan, just just to kind of cap what me, David, and Connor are going to talk about today. Archaeologists do not regard civilizations as better than hunter-gatherer societies or those of small-scale farmers, only different. It is perhaps only natural to admire the grandiose monuments, the powerful artworks, and the evocative literature left by the ancient Romans or Egyptians. These give us a vivid picture of complex societies, in some senses comparable to our own, but they're not better than earlier or contemporary, less complex societies. So like the purpose of this series, we're going to talk about complex civ. That's not to mean it's better than anything else just complex when you get complex sieve paleo-indian archaeology paleolithic archaeology is fascinating and there's a and but when you get complex sieve that's when you can really start talking about like commerce religion Mm -hmm. like more abstract ideas that are part of the human condition and there's and then this is not to say that those things didn't exist beforehand with these smaller groups it's just they're evident through the material culture like mm-hmm. you have art, you have maybe writing in some cases that actually describes these religious ceremonies or, or whatnot. But we know through our kind of modern studies of hunter gatherers, they do have some sort of belief system mm-hmm. there. Yeah. But it's just it's just easier for us to study as as archaeologists. It's more visible, or evidence for it is more visible in larger because it's it all comes down to population density and and with population density you get more material record density in the sense of like the classical maya and like the maya collapse like when we think of maya you think of you know the temples and tikal and things like that but when it collapsed the mayans went back to living in like small agrarian communities and some hunted and gathered like up until then i think they hunted and gathered i remember hearing something about that but Either way, like they're still Maya, they still speak Kich Maya, and like when the Spanish got there, that's who would have been interacting with. But they're not in the state level society that they used to be. Right. So it's the same culture is still there. You just have to adapt to the environment because you can't sustain that large urban complex anymore. And the Maya, which we'll get to later, are an interesting case study because they they're more analogous to like Greek city states rather than like the old. Roman Empire. You kind of have a homogenous culture group with different polities speaking the same language, engaging in the same culture, but like Tikal is not the capital. Yeah, like Athens just, wasn't the capital of the Greek world. Mm-hmm. There's different, yeah, there's different city city centers 
located across a large period of time. I only mm-hmm. think of Mel Gibson, honestly, when I, oh, when I think of the Mario. I mean, it's just so accurate and so good. It's the guy, damn it, he knows story structure, but the guy's crazy. <laughs> you know, we had David Anderson on, on the show early on, I think episode 12 or 13, and he did a, a review of that. And, and you, know, you wouldn't know, but when they have that image of Tikal, which is also, is that the Star Wars Rebel base from The New Hope? Yeah. Yeah. The monuments they have in the background, it was like having... They were not contemporaneous, and Dr. Anderson equated it with like having the Colosseum next to the Vatican, next to like uh, the Parthenon, on the same place. So there was, in terms of architecture, <laughs> it wasn't correct, but you know that's that's getting into the weeds a bit. What can you do? So when they were doing that, like the sacrifice and stuff like that, looking out onto that, there was just like I didn't even realize that. That's that's wild. Yeah, and, and you—I mean, you just—I would never have realized that he pointed out because he's a myotologist, so of course he knows the architecture. He's like, that's that's like putting the Lincoln Monument next to, you know, some uh, Dolans in Ireland. But there's so there's this correlation between state level societies and civilization. And just for our listeners, the term civilization is kind of a shorthand for urbanized state level societies. And these are really associated with pre-industrial societies. So everything are civilizations, right? So we are still talking about people without mechanized equipment, of, as, as we do. For you two, David and Connor, I'll start with David first. When you think of civilization, what are some qualities a civilization must have? Or that you associate with civilization, sorry. When you guys hear words, do you, do you see like the colors of it or like get like a smell of something? Or like... Do you like? Does an image come to your head? Not, not most days. Okay, so like, and you said civilization. Like, I get a taste of like corn in my mouth, and I can like smell it, and like it makes me think of, I guess, like the the Mesoamericans. Like that's where like my head jumps to. Fair enough. That's a weird thing to describe, but yeah, that's how my head works. <laughs> no, that's like when I hear civilization, the first thing I think of is like Ur and Uruk, mm. like the f- earliest ones through the globe. And like, yeah, I have this image of, for some reason, because it's in like, in between the Tigris and the Euphrates, when I hear of Ur and Uruk, I, I think of like Iraq. That's where yeah. my mind goes to. Yeah, um, I guess like when I was in grade school and like before archaeology, I think civilization, you know, popped up like the Civ Five, like the, the classic, like China and the Mediterranean and, and that. So I think I think grade that- school was Civ Three. Hmm? Grade school, we, it was Civ Civilization Three. Oh, I didn't play until four. Yeah, but you were in you were in middle school or high school when four came out. High school, yeah. The main intro theme to Civilization Four got a Grammy. Continue, yeah. Connor. <laughs> I was going to say, I, so I didn't at CSU. They don't offer as much uh, international archaeology and don't have that many uh, international archaeologists. So I really think of kind of like the the Hopewell or kind of these oh, yeah. these mound kind of sieves as we call them. But I also think that there's a uh, there's a certain amount of weight and judgment that the word civilization is used for. Yes. It's used for, it's used as a way to describe people who either are like with us or kind of against us, you know, like, are they some, you're either some- with me <laughs> or you're against me. And, uh, speaking Star Wars of, of Star Wars references, I was about <laughs> to make one, you know how our, uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, Bob Kelly defines civilization. Go at it. 
a complex urban society with a high level of cultural achievement in the arts and sciences, craft specialization, a surplus of food and or labor, and a hierarchically stratified social organization. Bob Kelly is on needed. <laughs> <laughs> what does high level of culture mean? What, what, what is how achievement? Do define this? Yeah, yeah, what is what's achievement? Making a stone tool or making the Mona Lisa? <laughs> I think we had this debate before and it didn't end well for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tune out. <laughs> okay, well, let's, okay, let's just assume that we give there's a value system associated with civilization where we yeah. draw civilization versus not civilization is a thing. It's a problem. We'll not deal with it on this podcast. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, I, I no. we'll get into the weeds with that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, but we, but, but we assume that it's like people expressing themselves in, in a really cool way that preserves archeologically and mm-hmm. as a system of writing, you know, I, I don't know what other characteristics. Record keeping. And the reason, the only reason I say record keeping is because like the Inca didn't have writing. Oh, okay. They had yeah. quipus. That, that's a really good point. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I think like the, the current one is just a system of record keeping to transmit knowledge, not through an oral way. And that, that comes about because of, I have another point after this too, but uh, that comes about because of trade and currency and tax. Like you have to, once you start needing to collect money from people or exchange like money for things instead of just goods for goods, you got to have someone write that down because you're like, hang on, you <laughs> let me invent some writing real quick because you owe me. Like I'm going to I'm going to put this down here on this tablet so you remember. And like literally that's how writing starts. <laughs> yeah. You don't have a name, but I'm going to give you a name. You're Bob. Take yeah. that name. <laughs> you're Bob. <laughs> you owe me interest. The word civilization can apply to so many things, I think. Mm -hmm. That's a big issue I have with the Hancock stuff. Like, in his book, I read it, like, or listened to it on Audible. He doesn't necessarily say, like, there's a giant civilization that's missing in the Amazon. He just says there's, like, a a decrepit civilization there. I forget how he, like, put it. But when people hear that, they're like, where are the temples? Like, why are there no giant stone temples there? Like, where are they hiding it? Have they just not found it yet? And it's like, yeah, but they're... It's a civilization in the sense that, like, the Hopewell Mountains are like a civilization, you know? It's just like a complex city center that was likely there. But then people get this idea of, like, wow, there must have been, like, sculptures and, like, art and people rolling heads down pyramids. Like, yeah, there's this con, there's this in the public zeitgeist, there is this perception that civilization equals complex and state level. As David said, you can have like the Iroquois civilization, like you can have different cultural groups, which are civilizations, but we attach this like bias towards what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the purpose of this series, we are talking about complex civilization, which is associated with these early statehood societies. Yeah. And with that, we get two kinds of early civilizations. You have primary and secondary. Define those. So primary. Better and worse. No, no, Connor. That is absolutely, absolutely wrong. <laughs> so, Scar and Fagan in Ancient Civilizations Fourth Edition, they define primary civilization. Da, 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 da. I'm so sorry. Primary civilization is usually reserved for those civilizations that are thought to have come into being independently. They are sometimes simply called first civilizations. The list includes Mesopotamia and Egypt. The Indus Valley, Shang China, the Maya, and the early civilizations of Peru. 
In none of these cases is stimulus from another center of civilization thought to have played a decisive role. The Ah, secondary civilizations are those of later date, notably the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, and the Aegean, or the early civilizations of Nubia and Southeast Asia. Here it is held that influences from long-established civilizations had a crucial formative impact. So you have civs that come into civilization without outside stimulus. They came into it themselves. Sorry, I'm reading the text box. Um, and then, <laughs> um, g- question to that would be like, so when you were listing those off, I was thinking of the Southeast, like, you know, the mound builders and mm-hmm. Mississippians. So Mississippians in this case would have been highly influenced by like Olmec told to like the civilizations were yeah. there expanding. I think it was what we, yes. Or would they, yeah. or, or is it more like, I mean, because their expression of it is completely different. First, mm. fundamentally different than the old mech and, and those like that. Would it be like the smaller areas surrounding those that are like variations on that? That I mean, the same thing applies for chiefdoms. You have primary, secondary network and corporate chiefdoms, which early Hopewell is. So you still have that same diffusion of these complex ideals emanating from Mesoamerica predominantly, which I think there's a bit of environmental determinism behind that, but we'll get that in the next segment. But yeah, David, so things happen in the Southeast, Southwest United States are as diffusion of ideas coming out of Mexico. But okay, sorry. So primary is just like they happen independently. Like there's nothing else influencing, but secondary civilizations or complex civ is because you have the Mycenaeans and Minoans who know of Egypt and Ur, Uruk, and Mesopotamia, and then adopt those principles. So there's that outside influence that is they're adopting and, and putting in their own cultural group. Um, and on that note, all I think of when people say Uruk is Urukai. So we're going to put the white hand of Saruman on our, on our foreheads and move on to the next segment. Take the Abbot's Dysengard. Are you sick of hunting and gathering? Always moving from place to place? Who are my farmers out there? Sick of local patriarch raids from warring tribes? Well, have we got a concept for you. New from Lithic Technologies, Inc. The state. Here, you can stay in one place, hide behind high walls, and defended by the strength of a conscripted military? Come on in. We have religion, music, even silks, and milk. Side effects may include disease, taxes, slavery, civil war, cavities, and the death of your firstborn child, and large-scale rape and slaughter. Thank you for that, Stefan Milo. So yeah, this is a, a great sell for all of us. We absolutely want to take part of that. How does complex civilization rise? Now, for our listeners, there's the primary states that we had talked about. There's a couple. Get them in the Andes around 1500 BC. Mesoamerica, also 1500. Egypt, 3000 BC. The Mediterranean, 2000. Mesopotamia, 3500 BC. Indus, Valley, 2500 BC, and Northern China in 2000 BC. So almost all of the early states arise in an equatorial latitude, except for the Indians. And they're they're kind of different. And they do some cool stuff. But is that longitude? Yeah, they do. No, latitude, your, your mouth, if you say latitude, your mouth goes horizontal. If you do longitude, your mouth goes vertical. And that's oh, how I, I said, remember it from third yeah, grade. Yeah, they do. I didn't say latitude, but yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, mouth tricks. Yeah. Take that as you will. <laughs> wow. We think they all develop within these, these, these climates. And there are multiple theories on how they ultimately come to be. And it, it, it's 
it takes on and it evolves through anthropological history and theory. So you start with V. Vere, I think it's his first name, Gordon Child, who wrote something about the urban revolution, Carlton. Yes. So there's four classic theories. V. Gordon Child's urban revolution, Robert Canero's warfare hypothesis, there's a technology and trade aspect, and Carl Wittvogel's hydraulic civilization theory. Urban. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's oriental, uh, what's that called? Oriental despotism. I think that's what that's called, right? What? Who, what's the guy's name you said? Carl Wittvogel. Very German. Well, there's someone that came up with this idea that like the state arises in Asia because it's called Ari- Oriental despotism, which the word is now not good, but like because people have to have these like watered areas to like live and grow their farm. Like there's people that become like despots and it's it's kind of racist. So yeah, I mean that fits very well in with Carl Wittfogel. So the hydraulic sieve theory is centered on these at during his time in the mid 20th century. Wait, it is him. I just looked it up. Yeah, Oriental despotism is by uh, by uh, Carl August Wittfogel. Sorry. Huh. Yeah, that fits. He's on and he is on notice because he recognized early on during his time that the earliest civilizations that they're finding archaeologically are around areas that do not have a lot of rainfall and are in arid regions. So this hypothesis is basically people organize that you have social stratification in which people become elites because they're just managing irrigation ditches and that the person that controls the water then becomes the despot ruler, the despot. I want to say that if you look his name up, the first thing on Wikipedia is that it'll, they mention him as a playwright more than an anthropologist. So, you know, huh. he did a lot of things. <laughs> well, he was German. Of course he did. <laughs> Didn't laugh. <laughs> no laughing involved. It was a very serious plays that he wrote. So water's important. Is water's important is, is basically, basically the management of water led to the rise of States. And basically, there was someone that conned a bunch of deans into giving him access to their water and became powerful through that. And then V. Gordon Child, he claimed that a Neolithic revolution, which witnessed the beginning of farming, was followed by an urban revolution. He theorized that this second revolution saw the development of metallurgy and the appearance of a new social class of full-time artisans and specialists who lived in much larger settlements, that is, cities. So basically, like, because of the Neolithic, because you had a distinct, we, we had gone from a period where you can, you didn't, prior to the Neolithic revolution, you were a farmer, you made your own pots, you had to do everything to sustain yourself. And you made, like, you hung out with your neighbors, and if someone was better, you would trade. But through the Neolithic revolution, you had full-time specialists. And it's through this use of full-time specialists, you get urban revolutions, because you had to have bartering and commerce between individuals. Right. So the potter didn't die of starvation, right? I'll trade you me goat for that little thing of pottery you got there. That was bad. I, I'll think of a better one. The Vikings. Doesn't Carnero do the same thing except for it, it involves conflict, essentially? Yes. So whereas Carl Wittfogel was influenced by the northern Chinese early statehood societies... And V. Gordon Child is really looking at Mesopotamia. Canero 
is looking at the archaeology of coastal valleys in Peru to propose that warfare played a key role in state formation. His coercive theory of state origins argued that the amount of agricultural land in these valleys was limited and surrounded by desert, so a series of predictable events led to the development of states. At first, these autonomous farming villages flourished in the valley landscape, but as the population grew and more land was taken up, the communities started raiding each other's fields as they competed for limited acreage, and then they basically grew into warlords. They just, they controlled too much and, you know, <laughs> wanted more and they kept wanting to expand and, you know, it's natural. So <laughs> Exactly. You know, Canero's theory in particular is hard to test in the field, but it has some support in Highland, Mexico, like specifically the Oaxaca Valley warfare in the form of intervillage raiding seems to have begun very soon after the first villages were established. And the technology and trade, that's really just the interconnectivity between individuals and the needing of keeping record keeping. As David said, like a big part of state formation and early complex civilization is keeping track of who owes you. Yeah. Fundamentally, capitalism. Yeah. And I assume red light district stuff, too. Oh, I bet. 100%. Sex sells. The world's oldest. I feel like the world's oldest profession is bartering, not necessarily prostitution, but... Hunting? But, I mean, bartering is yeah. a... There's a quick... A couple steps away. Bartering is a couple steps away from prostitutes. Quid pro quo. Hey, full circle. Full circle. <laughs> is it? Like like Carlton had mentioned, there, there's theorists who who put importance on different aspects of changes from the neolithic revolution that are important and and basically ascribe them more importance to than others uh for why we have these societies that emerge in this kind of state statehood civilization whatever you want to call it and i think honestly i i believe that it's it's probably a combination of all those things i mean i think there's probably importance in different areas different economic areas different environments but the need to have water, the need to protect the things around you and the need to trade and all this stuff really should contri- contribute to you creating this society that's structured and protects all that you have, kind of the surplus you have from the Neolithic Revolution. But that's just me. No, absolutely. And it's not just you. That's, that's the, these are the four classic theories from the mid-20th century. And modern anthropologists today, it's, they all say this is a mixture of all these things, 100%. Like there's not one theory that can explain it. It's a mixture of all. And more importantly, we have like social theories have become more predominant, which become mm-hmm. more abstract. Like the four classic theories are primarily rooted in the physical evidence, whereas contemporary anthropologists and archaeologists that do study uh, early complex civ are like, there are these non-evidential things like abstract ideas that don't contain the archaeological record that we can use to assume what's going on in the past. And all three of those pretty much, this is like, how do you get states where you have stratified, it, it involves power and you can get power in three domains and it's economic power, social and ideological power and political power. And it's the combination of these things that basically gives elites the uh, ability to can, to maintain control by force, which were vital ingredients of early states. So basically you have that one <laughs> from high school who's able to wield power. Like if you were to look at an early civilization, early farm, you have that one dude or woman 
who kind of just thinks they're hot stuff, gets their groupies around to bully everyone else into giving them their stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's yeah. you're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, like, the first description of that is not me, but the latter description is me for some reason. <laughs> I had like a, a gang of kids in high school that I would they did my bidding. The, the gangs in New York. Uh, this was in this was in Nashville, actually. Yeah, I organized a fight between the like the regular kids and the redneck kids, like the guys that always dressed country, and like talked ah! to everybody. And one day was like meeting the gym at six a.m. and like half the school was there, like witnessed this giant fight. <laughs> and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I rode the. It sounds made up, but I rode this guy's back. He was like very tall, and I held like one of those folding chairs and a mop pole. And like rode in the battle, but then we stopped because you know what were we what were we actually going to fight about? Nothing. I just stirred. This. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> the point of that is that is literally how state level societies are. You have somebody who's like, hey, that other group has some good plots of land over there to you know grow wheat or corn out of. We're gonna go take that, and like that's kind of like where this comes from. And that's you kind of get that in like nomadic stuff too. I don't know. But then, but, then, but then you like ascribe like an ideology like, oh, I I am this person from God who has this power. I should have control over this and everything you see around me. And yeah. or like so like it just gets way more intense than just like claiming resources. Right. This is when you start seeing organized religion that is supporting elites like prior to state level societies based on element service you have chiefdoms in which you have that's where you do have both achieve status in which you gain notoriety to lead the people but also ascribe status in which you can inherit status mm. state level societies are inherently ascribed so basically there's there's somehow one individual who's the ruling elite has to convince his peers and it's usually especially in early societies what we believe they tap into the religious aspect. Like, no, me and my family are different. We're gods. Therefore you have to listen to us. And if mm-hmm. we F up, it's because you guys failed us. Whereas if it was an achieved society and you failed, they would just get the next highest achiever and replace you. Hmm. So there's this, there's, you have to convince the population in early civ because what we see in early civilization, like things go bonkers. We all live in a complex, like, you know, industrialized statehood society. We're used to power differentiations. Like that's, that's our norm. Like we get it back then. This is unheard of. We've gone from like egalitarian where everyone's equal that you really have to be that guy that has to convince everyone else that you're special. Like they can't, like they're not worried about the fact that you're not working like everyone else. They've just accepted that as life. Yeah. And that's and, crazy to think. I don't know. And that's, that's the neat thing about like with, with chimpanzees and stuff, you can observe them and they have like territorial disputes and like they sometimes just gang up on people for no reason. They're just like, yeah, just like in the case of the high school thing, just cause it was fun. But then like in the sense of like a state level society, then you can add human culture into it and you have like religion and then you can convince a whole bunch of people to follow you for this reason or x reason and like people ask me on ethno to define religion a lot and it's like it's a system of belief that comes up to you know deal with the harsh realities of nature but also it's a social organization 
And when it's run and it's organized by one person and state level society is usually the pharaoh or someone like that, who's like the supreme, then you can have all of the people do your bidding and go to the next place. And as Carlton said, or, you know, war with the next state. And yeah, like Carlton said, it's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Well, and, and David, I know you've, you've talked about this in other areas, or at least we've talked about it. Like things get wild with the, like the Neolithic revolution in terms of violence between civilization violence and also like public displays of violence where you have like the, the Maya folks who are actively sacrificing folks to appease the gods and, and things like that. So there is this uptick in violence caused by like the Neolithic revolution and this organization of state societies ultimately to maintain power either within this, the civ or to ultimately stop other groups from uh, messing with your current civilization. Yeah. It's like a form of population control and like there's all sorts of stuff to it too. And this is kind of relevant, but I had somebody comment on a YouTube video. Like I take issue with cultural relativism because X, Y, and Z like doing something. I was essentially saying like, you can totally judge another culture because it's, you know, hurting somebody or something like that. And I was like, yeah, like, you can judge it at night, like by yourself, like with your, you know, significant other talking in bed about it. But like when you're doing the anthropological note taking, when you're in there, you need to put that aside. And like, so in the case of the Spanish, like they wrote everything about the Maya and the Aztec as being unchristian and demonic and things like that. But like that's, they're judging it from their perspective, but this is relevant because like in Europe, they were also mass sacrificing people in a different way, which was public executions because they didn't follow, you know, specific gods the right way, or they looked at the king the wrong way one day and he's like, oh, I'm out. But it's the same kind of thing. But like all state level societies have certain stuff like that. And it's, it's pretty crazy how that all just like goes up. Does that make sense? Sorry. I feel like I kind of rambled. No, uh, my advisor, Doug Bamford, that's a really good analogy. When he got that book, um, Archaeology of Warfare in the Great Plains published, his sister reached out to him and said, look what this local pastor said and like reviewed his book and was like, look what, look at the like horrible butchery of North America before Christianity arrived. And like Doug responded, it's like, right, because the great crusades were before Jesus died, right? (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I I think I, I lost track of the cultural relativism part, but like, right, we can't sit here and say like, which one is better? The crusade, like some of the Mayan sacrificial people were probably like, all right, yeah, I'll sacrifice myself. And then like in Europe, it's usually not, you know, you don't want that to be happening, but yeah, there's, um, there, there's just, you nailed that name, but you struggled at the beginning of this segment with what the hell was that word? Oh, uh, conscription, <laughs> conscription, you couldn't say conscription, but you said I was like, defended by strength, defended by the strength of a conscripted military. But I was like defended by the conscript of a <laughs> but you nailed, the, you nailed the Nawa word props. Uh, I kind of got lost in what I was saying, but I, I agree with you. And I was just kind of expanding upon that. No, yeah, um, cultural relativism. Like we can't look at. We have to look at these as best we can from an unbiased lens. We can't. You're crazy to think that there's not forms of violence everywhere and all civilizations. Like, get yeah. out of here. It's just different. Yeah, because you got you got to cull the population in some way. This is gonna get dark, but like then then you have collapse, right? And they don't have yeah. So like 
before we go, Easter Island, right? That's a collapse because they ate all the stuff and then they chopped every tree down and they're like, oh man, really should have taken some ecology classes before I got here. <laughs> and like in that case, like if there was population control, like maybe it wouldn't have been so bad, but like there's, there's a reason why states get so big and it's because there's all those little things fall into place, which don't have to fall into place. And they, I would rather people didn't get sacrificed, but like, see what I'm saying? Probably digging a hole here, but like it, it so, there's so so much complexity to stuff with like human culture. I don't know. Sometimes you just got to kill people. And on that note, yeah. we will uh, <laughs> we'll catch you in the third segment of episode 68 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Excellent. Welcome back to a Life in Ruins podcast. This is episode 68, where we are talking about the rise of civilizations and modern and ancient theories about uh, how they did arise. And I think we're going to start with our first case study here of a, situ- a civilization uh, arising and some characteristics of that. And of course, we have to go to the Fertile Crescent, the Middle East, because that's the oldest. Yes. Yeah, so the earliest civiliz- early civilizations that we do find, and oldest doesn't necessarily mean better, is in Mesopotamia. But it's also important to realize, like, these didn't just happen in a vacuum. So Mesopotamia, the earliest civilizations, we get about 3,500 BC. The Middle East has, specifically Mesopotamia region, has some rather important villages for you guys to look up on your own that do kind of prelude to the early civs. So they're kind of like the prequel. And so you have Jericho in the Jordan Valley, Abu Herrera, and of course, uh, Chetahoyuk in Turkey. So there are kind of like these archaeological sites prior to the early civilizations that have components of what will later become very much a part and associated with what we see with early civs. I think it's Ur is the first city that is there. Yep. Yeah, it's Ur and then there's um, Ur, Uruk, and I feel like there's another one that's like close to that. So it's Uruk is the is the first one. Okay. Um, and so the Uruk revolution revolution is it's called. So you have the city. You have multi. You have not just one city. You have multiple, which lead to the state and then writing. So cuneiform is already established during the Uruk period around 3500 BC, which marks the beginning of the Mesopotamian civilization. And which marks like these significant developments in craft specialization, the growth of se- the growth of centralized religion and secular control. So you get temples and palaces, and an expansion of trade between the South Mesopotamian plain and neighboring regions rich in raw materials. Huh. And so the Uruk period lasted over a thousand years, so about like forty two hundred to thirty one hundred BC, and saw the greatest transition transformation. Sorry, of Mesopotamia. So this is when we actually start seeing like cities and states. And the earliest one is here in what, as Connor described, the Fertile Crescent, which extends to the Eastern Mediterranean. So think like Northern Israel, Syria, up into Southern Turkey, Northern Syria, and in through the uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers into, I don't know what sea that is, unfortunately. I know the, the South, the Dead Sea. No, it's not the Dead Sea. It's the... The Persian Gulf, right? Caspian? Yes. Yeah, Persian Gulf. Into the Persian Gulf. So it makes a crescent, and this is what they call the Fertile Crescent because in this region, which is extraordinarily dry, these are major areas that have a lot of water. And civilizations arise around water for what reason? 
So that's where Carl Wittfogel's hydraulic theory comes into play, that basically you have these civilizations maintaining irrigation systems because like even like Egypt, which is the next one, they're trying to monitor and control Nile river flooding. And this is where geometry comes into play where they develop geometry, but the Tigris and Euphrates where Mesopotamia or Babylon shows up, they're managing the water in between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And Hmm. so you have this water management play in in a very arid area and you get the rise of these complex sieves. And this is where you see like cuneiform. And I really want to get, I've seen these on Pinterest and TikTok, those cuneiform cookie cutter things. You know what I'm talking about? That's pretty cool. Some I linear B cookies, dude. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, I think, um, linear, does linear A come before linear B or is it one of those things where it's like... Linear B was Europe, I think. You just said linear B. Okay. Well, yeah, I said linear B because it's the first one that came to my head, I guess. But I forget what linear A is. But this is cuneiform right. regardless, earliest accounts. And I think um, Gilgamesh is in cuneiform, right? Possibly. Okay. Yeah, I feel like it is. Which it is has supposed to be, be like the oldest recorded story or the oldest written story. Yeah, yeah, written story. What would be the alternative theory to like, not saying it has to be the despotism, but like, or the hydraulics theory, but like, what's the alternative theory to that? Because like, in my mind, it's like, you're around rivers, like we see that in North America where they're growing corn, like on the Mississippi where it's like fertile, the Nile for sure, the Tigris Euphrates. And like, is it not like correct that like society is just built up and built up and someone's got to like, you know, step up and lead it because not everyone can agree? Easily. I mean, that goes into that whole urban revolutionary thing because like even in Mesopotamia, yeah. this is where you're starting to see wheat, barley, lentils, chickpeas, dates, peas, pistachios. So and that's like around 1200 before present, so 10,000 BC. So this place, even prior to urbanization, you have like 8,000 years worth of practice agriculture, which then leads to population explosion and therefore population density. Yeah. But but uh, you can have irrigation and agriculture without complex states. Yes. So there has to be something else that's involved to ultimately get them to be a state level civilization. It's not just like, oh, I found water. Now I'm going to dominate the world. There's other factors involved. I mean, water, you have to have water. I feel like that's, yeah, that's like no matter what, but you have areas where they, they do practice irrigation and they don't become these larger, Mm -hmm. larger civilizations. So that, that'd be my only like, uh, against the water hypothesis. I gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But so um, the some of the remains of is that Uruk, there's like pretty cool architecture that is preserved um, from Ur and Uruk. They're they're called ziggurats. Ziggurats, yes, yeah. Step pyramids. Step pyramids that are I think they still are preserved to today. So you could you probably can't visit them now, and it might not be the greatest place to visit, but. Look it up. Oh, yeah, those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our mentor, Bob Kelly and DHT, I mean, once again, they they boil this down to multi-causal theory for the origin of states. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, they say in some places irrigation exists without states and other states exist without irrigation. In some, warfare precedes states formation, but in others it follows. As with agriculture, it is impossible to specify a single prime mover for states. No single condition is both necessary and sufficient to create an archaic state. Hmm. So, you know, even even BK and DHT, they can't 
point to one, but they do, like we said earlier, the role of ideology is extremely important in early state formation. So we'll never see the individual in the archaeological record that said, hey, assholes, follow me. This is what we're doing. <laughs> I want to find that guy. I want to be that guy. <laughs> I want to be. Well, I was looking online. There is a code of laws associated with Ur um, that is supposed to predate the code of Hammurabi. That's one of these kind of uh, elements to this civilization that is is pretty cool. Is that they're ultimately, you know, getting better at agriculture and controlling the environment around them, but also creating these these code codified things to to help control and keep themselves in power. Oh, absolutely. I mean, is that that same? Does that story? Does that come from Gilgamesh? Where? There's that story of two women in court arguing over who wh- who the baby belongs to. Mm. And the judge is like, all right, well, let's split the baby in half and each can have one. And the woman who like shed her tears, like crying, like, no, 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 just let her have it. He's like, that's the mom. I think that's Jerry Springer. Jerry, Jerry. Thank you, David. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that in the beginning, and then you talk about cutting a baby in half, and I was like, let me hold, let me hold my tongue. <laughs> um, I don't better. remember if that's the case, but I do remember like the code of Hammurabi is like a big thing. The the wheel, I don't think, was invented there. That was invented by the, like step people, but there's a lot of like what like step parents. <laughs> a lot of technologies coming out of like this area, and like was Mesopotamia Neolithic or was it a uh, Bronze Age? I imagine oh. bronze because metallurgy is very important. So if not bronze, definitely copper. Okay. Yeah. But it, but yeah. it's part of that, or, you know, it's, it's that, it's the first sieve. So it's part of a whole different revolution, but like going on with technology, they, they developed the cylinder seals in which you had these like impression seals that you'd roll on the clay tablets. And then inside the seals would have like tokens and they, you know, that's how they kept track of things. So if they shipped something to you, you'd get a cylinder seal. You'd have to break it. And inside would be these like tokens for how many sheep should be on the shipment. And if there was a discrepancy, they'd be all pissed off. Uh, 3800 BC was the beginning of Ur. So okay. what period are we in there? Uh, still within that Uruk period. So Ur okay. is within the Uruk period. And then hmm. Uruk is also a settlement within the area. But they're separated. So Uruk is in the southern Fertile Crescent. Now I think it's underwater because it's like southeastern Iraq, if not. Um, what's that country owned by BP that the first Gulf War was started over? Kuwait? No. Yeah, that one. Oh. It might be in Kuwait. And then uh, that's Uruk. And I'm trying to find Ur on this map. Ur is like on the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq, I think. Well, that's Uruk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, I mean, like the names of these civilizations, you have Shurupak, <laughs> Zablabam, Uma, Bad Tibira, and Uruk. So, I mean, like these are very, oh, you know, just something out of interest. The oldest word that hasn't changed over time in all languages is mama and papa. I think it's Fun how fact. babies move their Exactly. Lips. 100%. Yeah. I listened to that like, on NPR. Yeah, yeah. I think um, goat is one that hasn't changed too much. Goat has. Has it? But um, words related to filial relations like mama, papa, mom, and dad have been pretty 
Because those are the first people you know, and therefore the yeah. first words associated. And mom and papa come because, you know, like some civilizations, it's Abba or Appa. Same deal, just flip the consonants. Vowels? Yeah. If you're pushing a vowel. Out, and then if you're bringing in his m, that yeah. makes sense for a baby. Anyways. There was some National uh, Academy of the Sciences paper that came out a while back saying that they had traced a whole bunch of cognates down to like what the oldest words like that we know of like that share all languages Mm -hmm. or most languages and it was like weird stuff i think mama was on there but then like ash uh, and bark and worm were on there for sure yeah and there was another one that was like very odd but like yeah they share similarities with like indo-european and chinese and stuff um Anyway, irrelevant. Yeah, so, this is, so Ur is a little bit further northeast than Uruk. And yeah, Gil, Gilgamesh is firmly associated with, he's the king of Uruk. And that is that, also that story I shared earlier was him. But okay. as is with most of these ancient shit, shivs, not shivs, sieves, they ultimately are abandoned at some point. For some sort of reason, we're not going to. I don't think we're going to use the word collapse, or we're going to try to avoid that. Collapse mm-hmm. is so loaded. We'll yeah. get to that at some point. Yeah, it says but that like, they, with with Uruk as Connor's alluding to becomes like the Akkadian Empire, and there's like this transition of who's in power and where the capital is. But they maintain state level societies. So the Mesopotamian or like the Uruk civilization might quote unquote collapse or end and something takes its place. But like the people themselves fundamentally don't change and the culture doesn't change. It's, it's a, more of like a, a fluidity thing too here. Right. Cause it's like yeah. nothing has to like collapse, especially when they're all concentrated. It's just people shift to other cultures gradually over time. Yeah. Basically yeah. there's no cut in the line from Uruk to ISIS. It's all yeah. continuous. <laughs> like how different are like British and American? Like- Connor's eyes went so wide. <laughs> well, I mean, it's you're not going to like completely abandon the, the Fertile Crescent. Like, oh, sorry, no. this this one city didn't work. So we're, we're just going to leave and abandon it. You know, we'll come back in 200 years. Yeah. Oh, this place is stupid. All these goats. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the statehood societies or state level societies do not disappear from Mesopotamia after like period. Like they just change hats. We're still fighting over it. <laughs> You're right. I mean, so yeah. the only person to ever outside influence ever like quote unquote conquer the Middle East was Alexander the Great. That's because he burned every village that opposed him. Uh, Genghis Khan made his way through there pretty well. Same deal. Burned every village that opposed him. <laughs> that's true. You know, that's the only way to placate that area. Just kill everyone that doesn't agree with your rule. Can't do that in a demo- democratic society, though. But we at Election Road Podcast are not advocating such Genocide. No. Yeah. No. No. We're not about that. No. But, but oh, yeah. yes. So that's that's some of the oldest. One of the that oldest. is like the oldest. Uruk and Ur are like the oldest. And they have – like there's human sacrifice associated with one of them. I think they excavated one of the temples. You find the Wait. king and queen in there and like 30 band players. Wow. With instruments in there that look like something out of Dr. Seuss. They just look crazy. It's the Cantina Band. And like that just goes to show how powerful those elites are. Not only are they dead, but they told like 50 people like, oh, no, no, no. You're going into the afterlife with these people. You're going to get in this room and you're going to enjoy it. And they went willingly. Like they're not bound. Their bodies are not like skeletons are in a place that would suggest that they were forced to do it. Like they willingly died. 
Like that's how deep this power ideology is yeah. in state societies where people are so bought in that if you were, God forbid, you're the best tuba player. And like, once you get to the Greeks, if you're a beautiful woman, your life sucks. <laughs> tuba uh, player. <laughs> I feel like that's just a common theme. I mean, it could be, it could be great. It could suck like all around, but like, it's going to, all right, what, cut that out. That, 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 that literally had no point. <laughs> yeah, I just meant nothing. Oh, um, I just think it's hilarious. Like all I think of is like the Cantina band, you know, they're like, Anakin's like, sorry, you guys are sand people, you know, you're going to be a part of my crew. <laughs> I think we were talking in between the break about China and Ching Shi Huang, the like Chinese Alexander the Great, as I've seen him called, like just they're, they're big, they're big dude. He is the guy with the terracotta army. And also, fun fact, he ended up drink, eating a lot of mercury because he wanted to live forever. And they were like, yeah, try this. And he went crazy and was going blind. And then he would go shoot a crossbow into the ocean to shoot sea monsters. And like, he was like, come with me and applaud. And they were like, you did it. <laughs> and he was like going crazy. But then he died. And then they sacrificed a whole bunch of people to be with him in the afterlife. Like an army to protect him. And like... They, I don't know and if they all the workers. They killed all the workers that worked on it to keep it secret. Okay, and I know there's like a bunch of sacrificed women in there too. I believe. I believe. Maybe I'm thinking of another Chinese thing. Can you imagine that? Your you your despot is blind, going crazy for mercury, shooting crossbows into the ocean, and you just applaud him. Like I mean, that I mean, speaks to how bought in people are bought into the whole system. Yeah, we should write a new crazy. song. It's called uh, "Despot Sito." Oh, 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 oh my! That was God. so good. That was so good. Oh, we gotta end it there. We gotta end it there. We can't go on. That's fancy. Can I do Despacito right now? Oh, it's all in Spanish. Oh, you can speak Spanish because you blew my mind when we went to that restaurant that one night. Wait, where? Uh, when we were with all the three of us last time we were together. Oh, after, yeah. <laughs> after we were after we got our uh, Connor's car stuck, and then we went to that Spanish restaurant. What did they say to her? Uh, you basically said, let me pay for... In Spanish, you said, let me pay for the bill. Don't say this in English, because the fat guy across from me will argue. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember. I was like, don't, they're going to protest, but like I'm going to pay for this. And she was like, okay. I forgot about that. But I was um, trying to learn the song Despacito real quick to sing it, and then I realized I don't know any of that song at all, so... Uh, for our listeners tonight, the bones of this came from Archaeology and Humanities Story, a brief introduction to the prehistory by Deborah Olszewski, Ancient Civilizations by Chris Scar and Brian M. Fagan, fourth edition, and shout out to Dr. Jason Tui at the University of Wyoming. And then, of course, Archaeology, seventh edition by Robert L. Kelly and David Hurst Thomas, um, instructor's edition because I was his TA. So those were the three um, primary sources I used to provide the bones but i have a few more there's also order legitimacy and wealth that is by oh crap i can't remember the guy's name oh wait, we had to read this in ours and then there's also ancient states and there's another one called crap i can't recall i have to see the picture of the book they're on my shelf order legitimacy and wealth that is by janet richards and mary van buren and then there's ancient states let me see Okay, myths, myths of the Archaic State. That's what it is. And that is by Norman Yaffe. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. That is. Um, uh, I feel like there's another, but that's fine. 
they will be in the show description. So we have a list of those and we'll continue this series. And now that we got like the basics out of the way, we can go into like different regions and the cities and what makes them different in the early civs. Cause there's some really interesting things that go on. Shoot us an email guys or on Instagram. Let us know which one you want us to do first. That would help us plan. And I do want to get to the Oracle bones. I want to get into China cause China, we don't talk about, and I want to get into China. Asian and Oceania. Um, yeah, and please rate the podcast. Can't do it on Spotify, but rate and provide us feedback on whichever plat- podcast platform you are uh, listening to to the to our show. So, with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So I was looking up online. I think this is supposed to be one of the oldest jokes written down. I'd die if it's a your mama joke. <laughs> it's, it's kind of is. <laughs> Something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. Okay. You know what? That's probably happened. And see, here's the thing, though. If that's the oldest joke, it's probably from Mesopotamia, right? Those guys were eating chickpeas and flax and wheat and just glutening it up. And that was the first time in the world where they were like... milk. Yeah, right? Intensively (laughs) eat milk and bread. And tell me they're not... It probably smelled pretty bad, guys. Not gonna lie. All right, and with that, and on that we're out. <laughs> this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.